Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. It's time for episode 21. Yes, 21 episodes. Can you believe it? Of course you can, because you hopefully probably just listened to episode 20. And as we all know, 21 follows 20. Yes, that's why you tune into the Steal My Name podcast for hard-hitting info dumps like 21 follows 20. Hope so you guys have been able to get out and enjoy some of the sunshine wherever you are. If you happen to be listening to this in a in a sunny area, looks like spring is finally here, though it seems to be the case most years running now that we just go from kind of a dismal half shitty spring right into summer weather. So spring and fall, I guess, are just going to be off the menu from now on because global warming's not a thing. But it's been nice. It's been nice to get outside. Uh, it's been nice to see the horrid sunburns walking around after the last two days because it seems, you know, like just the first snowfall, everyone forgets how to drive. It seems to be that first couple of weeks of really good sunshine. Everybody forgets that, oh, people get sunburns. I even did it to myself. I sat outside reading the other day and now it doesn't take much for me to get a sunburn. If, you know, I've, if my lamp is too close to me, I can get a little pink, but I sat outside reading for 20 minutes, half an hour. And, you know, you just do the old test on your arm. It's, oh, touch your arm, comes away white. Yeah, so got a little pink. But thus far, I have avoided my first burn of the season. So, but it's it's nice to get the summer, the, the nice weather going, especially as we do start to slowly open up again here in, at least in Ontario, safely, hopefully. You know, even though the unfortunate thing that I'm sure some people have forgotten by this point is flattening the curve doesn't mean the disease goes away. It just means that now the next group of people get to get sick. (laughs) So fun, fun with plagues. But we're not here to talk about plagues. We're here to talk about superheroes. That's what the month of May has been thus far. So we're going to continue that. So in a world dominated by the NCU, in a media world, I should say, dominated by the MCU, it is easy to forget the big eras or uh, to be overly grandiose, the epochs of comic book movies that have come before this. I'm sure there are people that are kids that are young enough that are like, oh, what's those old movies? You know, and they forget about it, you know, kind of like Spider-Man does nowadays. You ever see that really old movie? (laughs) How old is this kid? I don't know. I didn't check his ID or carbon datum or whatever. Iron Man says, But before the MCU, you could really kind of break it down into, I would say, four eras of the big comic book movies on the screen. So MCU and to a lesser extent the DCU right now, before that, the big run of movies was the X-Men series. They kind of dominated the big screen. The first wave that kind of kicked that all off was Richard Donner's Superman. But in the middle of that and in the 90s, What dominated comic book movies, even though there were several that came out, lesser known ones, it was Batman. Batman was the big dog on the big screen. For for many years, it was considered that beyond Batman, nothing really stuck in a big way, at least until X-Men came out. You couldn't really do anything uh, with a superhero character on the big screen that would really stick and blow up in any kind of a big way. Now... There's a lot of reasons for Batman's success. I think primarily the character is just very interesting. Batman is such an extreme character. This idea of somebody who is his life is so insanely focused on his own brand of revenge and justice. And he has probably the best rogues gallery of villains. 
you know, Joker, Two-Face, the Riddler, Catwoman. It just the list goes on and on with all these great adversaries that he's had over the years. But this big return we had to Batman was really thanks to the movies, because for a lot of years, the character had been kind of dragged through the mud thanks to the backlash that happened from the Adam West TV series. Now, it was very popular for a few years, but when you're doing that kind of hard, high camp, it's a it's a flavor of the moment. You can't really extend that for too long, and rightly so. It fell off. Now, in comic books after that, Batman did make a good return to form into the 70s. It got darker, and then into the 80s, we had Frank Miller doing The Dark Knight Rises, or sorry, The Dark Knight Returns, which is an incredible book. It's been influential on pretty much every iteration of Batman we've had since then, or at least that's what all the filmmakers say. They always say, oh, The Dark Knight Returns, The Dark Knight Returns. And then to a more or less degrees, they sometimes get it right, sometimes don't. So I think the closest we've got is Batman v Superman, but that movie just kind of wallowed in its own Zack Snyderiness. So even though I will say and I've always said Ben Affleck did make an excellent Batman and Bruce Wayne, he just didn't get a good movie to really flex those bat muscles in. But what we're here to talk about is what you could call the Tim Burton series of Batman movies. So that is Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. Now, they're all very different films and met with varying degrees of critical success, audience success, financial success, but they were a huge deal. These were the comic book movies that were on the big screen and impacting me when I was a kid, as a 90s kid growing up in the 90s. So let's start at the beginning. Another math lesson. Where should we start? The beginning. Yes, makes perfect sense. So we're going to start with Tim Burton's 1989 film, Batman. So synopsis. The Dark Knight of Gotham City begins his war on crime with his first major enemy being Jack Napier, a criminal who becomes the clownishly homicidal Joker. Now, this first Batman movie, I didn't actually see it at the time when it came out. At the, to be fair, I was young. It was 1989, so I was four or five. The, for me, at that point, my life was kind of it was dominated by Ghostbusters and Ninja Turtles. That's really what I was into. So I was a little young for this first Batman movie. But this film was a blockbuster in the classic sense of the word. By this point, Superman had lost his steam on the big screen. His movies were seriously diminishing returns up until Superman IV, The Quest for Peace, really put the nail in his coffin. And audiences were, they were primed and ready for a new hero. You know, the the world was kind of moving out of this, the darkness of the 80s with, you know, the height of the Cold War and all the gas or all this bullshit that had happened in the 80s. And... Cinema itself was also starting to kind of lighten up a little bit that the darkness that had been injected into a lot of heroes at that during that era was kind of starting to fade. And Batman kind of came along right at the perfect time. And they did a lot of things right with this movie. I think one of the most interesting things that they did at the time was the advertising was initially all they would put up was the new bat logo you know the black bat symbol on the gold background one of the 
best pieces of film advertising that has ever happened because it's just such a simple image. It's like the no ghost logo. You know exactly what you're looking at. And it's, it's at least with Batman that, you know, the bat symbol on the gold shield, it's, it's dynamic. It's interesting. It's mysterious. It's a version. It's, it's a version of Batman we haven't seen before. So it stoked the public's interest. And this movie was huge. It dominated 89. It was second worldwide only to uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It was the biggest movie in North America. It was just huge. And it was everywhere that year. Prince's music in it, which I don't like, but I'm not a Prince fan anyway, so I can't really comment too much on that. It wouldn't be fair. It dominated the charts, the, the toys, the merch, the hoopla, everywhere. I remember that side of it. Uh, I don't know where my dad got this stuff, but at one point this that year, he came home with a bunch of boxes of the Batman trading cards, and there were candies that came out. There were little bat heads that you opened up, and there was just powdered sugar inside, because that was candy back then. Just give them a bag of powdered sugar. It's good. It's good. Teach them how to fucking make lines with it. Pretend they're snorting cocaine with their candied cigarettes. 80s and 90s were a good time. <laughs> But it was it was absolutely huge. And the movie itself, it was completely different than what we had seen before. The the Richard Donner Superman, it was it was light and friendly and in the way that Superman should be, you know, the truth and justice in the American way. Where this, it was completely different. It was this odd mash of the comic books, film noir. And almost kind of a metropolis, you know, art deco design, you know, the shadows, the grand architecture, all this stuff played in and created a universe, a the world of Gotham that we hadn't really seen before on the big screen like this. It was set in a world that was distinctively not ours. And while you could look at it and pull these elements of past films uh, has a very kind of 40s, 50s look to it. Everybody's in suits and a mix of old cars and new cars. But it still felt very otherworldly. It was one of the first times in a comic book film, if not the first time with a comic book film, where you felt like you were stepping into a distinctively separate world. Kind of in the way that something like Blade Runner created such a vast canvas for its characters to play in, but it was a distinctively new canvas. It was a world that was recognizable as Earth, but it was tweaked and heightened. It was a world we didn't live in. Kind of like an alternate history is where something like Gotham could have existed. And then I guess you could say the major difference is bringing in somebody like Tim Burton, which seems like such an odd choice. It's obviously we've had so many years have passed, 30 years have passed since then. We've had to live with this and the the success of this decision. But I, I can't imagine the logic that went into this. You know, who do we get to direct Batman? Bring it to the big screen. Well, let's get the guy that made Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice. Okay. It seems so odd, but it actually makes perfect sense. Because you have to bring in somebody that has a very distinct off-kilter vision of the world and is confident in making new worlds and can also bring in and mix 
a very hard edge with a very high sense of playfulness and fun, which he had shown that he could do, especially with something like Beetlejuice. Now, when the film came out, or you should say in the lead up to the first movie, there was a casting controversy that seems silly now, because most people, if you ask them, who is your favorite Batman? Most people will say Michael Keaton. And rightly so. He's one of the, if not the only actor who's really balanced playing Batman and Bruce Wayne very well. But it was a huge fucking problem with fans at the time. There was a letter writing campaigns back when you just didn't get mad on Twitter that were screaming at the studio. How can you make Mr. Mom fucking Batman? Because Michael Keaton to this point, other than Beetlejuice and even with Beetlejuice, because it is a primarily comedic role. That's what he was known for. It was like when Tom Hanks made the jump from his friendly comedies and then kaboom hit with Philadelphia and people were like, oh, Joe versus the volcano is got some range, <laughs> which we look back now and go, okay, that's obvious. And it's obvious now to look back and say, Michael Keaton has range. Of course, he's one of the best actors of his generation, but hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So that was a huge controversy, but he does such a great job because he plays both characters differently. And that's integral to have that switch between Batman and Bruce Wayne. Cause though, they are the same person. Technically, they're two very different sides of his personality. And he plays Bruce Wayne with such a gentle confidence where he can get a little befuddled sometimes, but he's still very confident and mysterious. And his Batman is very dark and menacing. So that part of it is, I think, what really all those elements coming together is what really grounded it. And then, of course, there's Jack Nicholson as the Joker, which to this day, there's been, you know, X number of Jokers have happened since then. Now, I have not seen the Joker, the new movie, so I can't comment on Joaquin Phoenix's performance, even though I've heard it's absolutely incredible. But, you know, Heath Ledger's performance obviously is classic and it's the only good part of The Dark Knight. But Jack Nicholson's The Joker is just... It's like they took Cesar Romero's Joker from the Adam West TV show and just made him mean and vicious and violent, but still brought over a lot of that camp and humor from it. And his performance as the Joker is just as good now as it was then. But the original Batman, there seems to be this weird... I don't know if it's a nostalgia or rose-colored glasses element to it, where people look back on this movie and go, oh, it's so gritty and grim and dark, and this is what established Batman as a real threat and violent figure on the big screen. And like, Sure, there is a lot of that to it, but there is a huge amount of the Adam West show involved here. There is a lot of silliness. And a lot of camp involved in this movie. And I don't know if people just choose to not see it that way, or they just haven't watched it in so long that they've forgotten these elements are there. But they're very present, especially, I would say, in the second half of the movie, because the plot starts to get a little rubbery at this point. And there is just rampant silliness. Now, it's the Joker. He's supposed to be a very arch character. 
and he's you know known for this mixing this you know this dark humor and violence and all this stuff but it really gets quite silly in this film and it's it's one of the reasons why this has never been a favorite of mine in any way maybe i don't have that early nostalgia with the film it's something i cuz i came to it later even though it was only be a few years later that i saw it but the film just other than like the design is amazing the performances are amazing i love the the noir the 50s look of the whole thing you know plucky reporters and newsrooms and the architecture and the art design and production design of the film but overall i'm i'm just genuinely not a huge fan of the first batman movie it's this isn't one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of it, but it is worth mentioning, especially in comparison to comic book movies now, but also just when comparing it to other Tim Burton movies, even his other Batman movie, it's a very slow burn of a film, which is good. And it makes sense that they would do it this way because you're introducing the audience into such a, you know, a bold new vision of what a comic book movie can be. You know, we don't even see the Batmobile until the one hour mark. And well, now when we do, it's worth the wait because that original Batmobile, despite being insanely impractical, is super dope and it looks awesome. But it is a very slow film. And it's not that, you know, I need shit throwing at the screen. I can watch a slow burn film. You know, the the before series by Richard Linklater are, are incredible. And those are, you could say, slow burn films. They're just people talking. But... I could say that it plays against it a little bit for me, but I think if there's one criticism that you could offer this first Batman movie, and unfortunately it's something that started a trend throughout the rest of the films, is it was the fact that Batman became almost a secondary player in his own films. And it's something that wouldn't be really rectified until Batman Begins. Now, I don't know if that's because Tim Burton is such an eccentric director and he identifies so much more with the monsters, kind of in the same way that in Blade 2, Guillermo del Toro has always said he had a problem with Blade. He couldn't really understand the character who kills the monsters. He was always more interested in the monsters themselves. And I think that come, that that shows here that he didn't really know what to do with Batman in his own film. So his focus became much more about the Joker and that side of things. And those moments are fun. There is a lot to enjoy with the first Batman. But it's it's definitely not, out of the four, it's not one I would go back and watch. But I can still understand and appreciate its importance to not just cinema as a whole, but to the history of the comic book film. This is one of those big, you know, it's it's a stone marker in the, you know, out in the landscape or the, you know, the monolith that is the history of the comic book film. It is one of the huge markers. We would not have the modern superhero film or the modern comic book film without Tim Burton's Batman. So, as I said, it was a gigantic success, which meant... The studio is going to want more. Let's get some sequels going. So we all kind of knew that there was going to be another Batman coming, but what form it would take, what it would look like, that was definitely up in the air. 
Now, obviously, they wanted to keep, you know, this team had delivered a, you know, a very successful film. So we want that to happen again. But Tim Burton has spoken over the years about the difficulty of making this film and not just, you know, the scale of it, because it was so much bigger than what he had attempted before. But producer meddling, script changes, all this kind of stuff. So he had said that if you want me to come back for another one, I have more creative control. And you could say complete and total control over the product. So that's what brings us to our second film, Batman Returns from 1992. So, synopsis. Batman returns to the big screen when a deformed man calling himself the Penguin wreaks havoc across Gotham with the help of a cruel businessman. Yeah, yeah, that tracks. So, Batman Returns was actually the first one that I saw. Um, and I went to see it on the big screen. I think it was Janet LaRue, uh, one of our neighbors. She took a bunch of us kids to go see it. And I remember my parents saying specifically, if you want to see, to go to the theater to see Batman Returns, you need to see the first Batman movie. So I actually borrowed it from the LaRue's. I remember going over to borrow it and sitting and watching it and being kind of bored, not really overwhelmed by the whole thing. But I was excited to go see it because we loved not just Pee-wee's Playhouse, but Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It was a big movie for us in our house with uh, me and my parents. And knowing at this point I could understand that, oh, the guy that made this is make, has made these Batman movies. So I was at that age where you can start, if you're a big film person at that age, you kind of start to put together just exactly what it is a director does and starting to seek out films made by specific filmmakers. So this was really the first big superhero movie of my childhood. And I think that kind of says a lot in the direction I would go later in life because while the first movie was, had elements of Tim Burton's style kind of mixed in with Batman itself, this movie is really, it's a full-blown Tim Burton movie that happens to be about Batman. And at this point, Tim Burton was really at the top of his game. He had gone from one success to the next to the next, like just just. Check out this run. This is the run of films he had done. You know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, and then followed that up with Ed Wood. Like, talk about a run of absolutely incredible films. A filmmaker just getting better and better and better at what he does. Now, unfortunately, he would follow up Ed Wood with Mars Attacks, which I know has its fans. I don't care for it. And in my personal opinion, he would only make one good movie after that with Sleepy Hollow. Yes, I know Nightmare Before Christmas is in there, but he didn't direct it, so I'm not including it as in this list. So that's what's that's the best part of Batman Returns, is it is a Tim Burton movie to its core. I mean, who else would think to put weaponized penguins in their movie? Nobody else would do that. That whole giant sequence with the, the missiles, the missiled penguins, the, the B-missiled penguins at the end. It's absolutely fucking crazy. But craziness and wacky Tim Burtonness aside, everything is better about this movie. The bat suit looks better, the scale is bigger, the characters are more interesting. Everything is better. This is, I think for a lot of people, is the best of the four Batman movies, the original Batman movies. And for a lot of people, the best Batman movie overall. 
I share a lot of that opinion. I think it's the most interesting, but I I look at it much more as a Tim Burton movie, not necessarily a Batman movie specifically. And I think some of that comes from what he had started in the first film, where Batman is again, if not to a larger degree this time, kind of pushed to the back burner in favor of the villains. But here, luckily, the villains are wonderful. They are just great. Danny DeVito is obviously seemed born to play the Penguin. His The makeup is incredible. I think it was Rick Baker designed the makeup for this. That or Stan Winston, one of the two. And the makeup is, is disgusting. And he's just always chewing in the black bile on his mouth. And he is just... He is eating the scenery in every film. Like he chews scenery in this movie in a way that even William Shatner would probably go, yo buddy, you gotta like, you gotta take a step back, you know, eat a fish. Like just take a breath. Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman is legendary. It hasn't been beaten. I don't know how you can beat it. And that fucking outfit. I know that for me, uh, and I'm sure a, a generation of little boys and I'm sure a generation of little girls were very confused by a lot of the new feelings they had watching Michelle Viper in that cat suit. And it's still stunning today. It, it is. And I know it's been hugely influential on the design of Catwoman going forward. Just look at the, you know, the Catwoman in the in Arkham Asylum. Sorry, in uh, Arkham City, the Batman video game. Sure, the suit's a little different, but she's playing a variation on Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. And, you know, there's there's just so many great characters in this. You know, Michael Keaton is doing a great job as Batman and Bruce Wayne. Michael Goff is back as Alfred and one of the few actors that would carry through all of the films. And then Christopher Walken turning in what may be one of his most Walken-esque performances that I can't help but wonder if it was based on 80s Trump before we got into, you know, potential to end the world Trump. Because, you know, the, the puffy hair, the crooked businessman, the suits, the whole thing. It's just, it's a wonderful film. The design alone of the film is stupendous. It is intrinsically Tim Burton designs. And, but what's interesting and what's not interesting, but what's great about this film is that you can strip all that away. And I think there's just more going on thematically this time around, because at its core, it's a film about trauma and identity and how people choose to respond to that trauma or a trauma that they've gone through, which that's something that's at the, that is also at the core of the Batman mythos itself. It's how characters respond to trauma. It's something that happens. It's at the core of a lot of superheroes and their own various universes and rogues gallery. But you know, we look at Batman, Catwoman, and the Penguin, they all experience some kind of trauma or loss, and that forced them to create some kind of new identity. And 
it all comes down to what that new identity is and how they choose to go out into the world with it. You know, we all know Batman's trauma and what happened to Bruce Wayne. So he created this character to go out and make sure that what happened to him wouldn't ever happen to anyone else. He decided to use his trauma for good to help other people. Catwoman, you know, with Selena Kyle and her trauma, she becomes this kind of mixed, you know, a very classic antihero. Sometimes she's out there killing people and working with the bad guys or just for herself. And sometimes she's on the side of Batman and the good guys. So this wonderful gray area where the Penguin, you know, abandoned as a kid because they went for a full physical deformity this time instead of just, you know, he was just the short, dumpy, fat dude that looked like a penguin, so people call him the penguin, just went full-bore evil guy. And like I said, recruited a mechanized army of penguins, or an army of mechanized penguins. That's it. I guess mechanized army would mean the penguins were driving vehicles, which seems like a total missed opportunity to not see a bunch of penguins squawking at each other inside of a tank while one's pushing on the steering wheel or the gas pedal and the other one's trying to drive. That would have been fucking hilarious. But having that you know, real meat at the bottom is great. And while Batman is pushed to the side again, he is sidelined in favor of the other characters still this time around. It does carry over something that Tim Burton started in the last film and it would continue into the next into Batman forever. And it's this idea of, just how desperately isolated Bruce Wayne is in his role as Batman because he has had to create such a fake persona with Bruce Wayne, you know, this kind of, you know, laissez-faire playboy philanthropist who the, the, the farthest you could ever go from being Batman and then having to fulfill this role as Batman. So not really knowing where he is, you know, he takes off the cowl and just has to put on this role of Bruce Wayne. So he's so desperate to share that with somebody in the first movie. It's Vicki Vale. And here it's seeing himself in Selena Kyle, seeing that trauma that she's gone through reflected back on him and how easily he could have gone that route and become a much more violent person. And his need to share not just who he is with her, but what he's learned through his own journey and the the pain and sorrow and suffering he's gone through. And just wanting to reach out to somebody in his life beyond Alfred. So those parts ground the film and do give it a sense of humanity in what otherwise could have just been kind of a Tim Burton extravaganza because it really is an extravaganza. It is pretty outrageous, but that's what makes the film so much fun. It's a movie that plays just as well now as it did then. The effects are still great because they have that very rough around the edge, classic era Tim Burton vibe where they don't have to be perfect to work, you know, the the Red Triangle Gang, the Circus Gang still looks spooky and creepy and an early role for Doug Jones, everybody's favorite suit performer. And if you if you know his face, you can spot him because he's uh, pretty f- prominently featured, I would say, uh, background character or secondary character in that gang. It's just 
it's it's a movie filled with incredible moments, and I could just kind of go through and, and list them all off, but that's not really what I want to do here. Otherwise, we'd be at this all day. But if there's a movie that of these four that somebody's like, I want to watch, you know, one of the old Batman movies, go with with this. It's kind of the Rathacon of of the original runs. It's you get a little bit of everything, and especially if that person doing the asking is a Tim Burton fan. Now, why the fuck they wouldn't have seen it if they're a Tim Burton fan, I don't know. But you know, people are weird. We live in strange times. So, the film came out, and it was a big success. It wasn't the monumental hit that the first one was. Part of the reason for that is Batman Returns is a much darker film. And I, I hate that term because it's bandied around so much nowadays. Oh, the film's dark. Like, well, yeah, it's a Batman movie. Of course it's dark. But it is, there is a lot of sexual innuendo in the film. There is a lot of violence. And the penguin is just so gross. And I think that put a lot of people off. And especially because the movie was so heavily marketed to kids. Obviously, it's a superhero movie. It's a Batman movie. So a lot of parents took their kids to see this movie and were a little horrified at what they ended up getting. Now, in hindsight, I can't say why they were so shocked. Like, you know, the information was all there about what you were going to get. But I think there is a certain expectation that when you market movies like this to kids, that it's going to be palatable to them. I think it's a reason why, you know, how successful were the toy lines for the DCEU movies? You know, a lot of kids rushing out to get the Batman v Superman toys. You know, oh, the one where Batman murders people the whole time and then beats Superman near to death? Yeah, that's what the kids want to play with, those toys. But we did. The toys for these movies were fucking awesome. And all the tie-ins and the merch. But it was there was a huge backlash that happened, and the studio took a shitload of heat over this movie. It seems funny in the era of R-rated superhero movies. It really does feel a little tame, but the backlash was real. And that kind of laid, you know, led the studio to obviously wanting more. They sure as hell weren't going to shut down this cash cow. But there was a desire to, you know, quote unquote, lighten things up to make it a little more family friendly going forward. And that's exactly what happened, moving into Batman Forever. So when it came time to do the third one, Tim Burton has said that it's not that he didn't want to do a third one. It's just that he he knew that he wasn't really being asked to do a third one. He probably could have pushed it and got the movie, but, you know, he had done you know, these two big movies, he's never done sequels to his own work outside of this. So I'm sure he didn't want to just keep making these Batman movies over and over and over again. So he decided to step back into a producing role on the next film, on the third movie. And due to that, Michael Keaton didn't want to continue in the role without Tim Burton. So he stepped away. So Batman Forever was always going to be or whatever the third movie would have become and it ended up becoming Batman Forever, it was always going to be very different because your key creative decision makers are kind of out of the equation. You're going to be dealing with a new Batman. So Batman Forever is one of the 
earlier, I guess you could say, examples of a soft reboot, where it is a continuation from Batman and Batman Returns. You, you know, there are characters that are carrying over, you know, Michael Goff as Alfred carries over, Commissioner Gordon is played by the same guy as well all throughout. So we're in the same universe, you know, the the art, the architecture design is all the same, but we're basically starting fresh as well. So it's kind of the, you know, it's the old, well, it's not the old, it's the new, it's how we look at something like The Force Awakens now. While it is a sequel, it is also a soft reboot. This is bringing us back into the world of Batman that we know, but it's going to be presenting us with a kind of a new take on that. So filling the shoes of Tim Burton, or to fill the shoes of Tim Burton, they brought in Joel Schumacher. So 1995's Batman Forever. Batman must battle former district attorney Harvey Dent, who is now Two-Face, and Edward Nigma, the Riddler, with help from an amorous psychologist and a young circus acrobat who becomes his sidekick Robin. So as I said, the the design is all still very much, you know, the Tim Burton movies. This is still very much his universe. The grand design is there along with the 50s kind of noir influence. But a lot of the hard shadows, the grim side of Gotham is gone in favor of kind of a more noir approach. The city itself is grander. Everything that was already present has just been escalated. The buildings are taller and grander. The statues are bigger and littered throughout the city. It's moving in this direction, and it would continue into the fourth film, of almost this kind of, you know, steampunk, um, diesel punk, 30s style art deco city of the future, you know, the, the world, you know, it's a city that might've existed if world war two hadn't have happened, you know, big bridges and waterfalls. And it's, it's, it's just dialing everything up from the last two films. And that's really what happens here. Everything is being all the lighter, funner elements are being dialed up while the the grim side of it is all being kind of turned down, you know, just working those two dials. And what that means is the camp elements are also being turned up a couple of notches. And this would continue on into the next film. But I think Batman Forever, especially of the four, I think it takes a lot of unnecessary heat. And I think the major reason for that is the film tends to get lumped in with Batman and Robin. And because they're the two Joel Schumacher films and they were the two lighter ones. But I think that's unfair because, well, yes, this film does have a lot of the harder edges from the first two have really been sanded down here. And the camp elements have been dialed up. It's more humorous. They still do a lot of things right in this film. And I think the biggest change and the biggest, the best thing they do here is that for the first time and really out of the four original films, it's the only one that actually focuses on Batman and Bruce Wayne. It's his movie. It's 
yes, the villains are predominant and are dominant in this film. They do have a lot going on because, you know, two villains again, you have to focus on them. But it really is for the first time, it's Batman's movie. You know, he was a side player in the other two, for all intents and purposes. Here he is really the focus. And they do such a great job because even the villains, while they are very central to the plot and they do get a lot of screen time, they are also reflections of him. As I've talked about before, something that's so great about Batman and his rogue gallery. You know, they reflect both sides of him. And that's what the film is really about. It's this duality of Batman and Bruce Wayne. And the Riddler blames Bruce Wayne for his failings and being run out of Wayne Enterprises and what happened to him, whereas Two-Face blames Batman for what happened to him, uh, his inab- Batman's supposed inability to save him. So, And he, in turn, has to now deal with both of them. And they're now both praying, they've teamed up and they're preying on both Bruce Wayne and Batman. So he's getting it whether he has the cowl on or not. So that's great because it's putting an extreme amount of pressure on Batman and Bruce Wayne really for the first time. It's not just, oh, I have to work my way through this, you know, punch out a few people, have a scene as Bruce Wayne, punch out a few people, have a scene as Bruce Wayne. You know, things are as difficult for Bruce Wayne as they are for Batman this time. Now, speaking of Batman, I guess we have to talk about the recasting. So we know that Michael Keaton received a lot of praise, and rightly so, for his performance. So who do you bring in? You know, in hindsight, it does seem funny and a little weird that Val Kilmer was the one to be brought in. But we kind of have to remember that in the mid-90s, Val Kilmer was a huge star. He was a genuine movie star. So it seemed sensible that you would bring in somebody like that, somebody that could headline a film. People would be excited to go, oh, Val Kilmer's playing Batman? I have to go see that. You know, go see the new Val Kilmer movie. You know, which, again, odd now, but it made perfect sense at the time. Because this is kind of right around when he started to kind of go crazy in his personal and public life. So... I think we're getting a flip here because Val Kilmer, I think, makes a good Bruce Wayne because he's carrying over some of what Michael Keaton did, but he's playing Bruce Wayne much more reserved and almost a little chilly in his public persona because he's very much a public figure this time. That was something that was so odd about the first movie, is no one seemed to know who Bruce Wayne was. You know, there was no information about him, even though, you know, Wayne Enterprises, all this stuff. And there's a little bit more in the second one, but by this time, he's more represented in the way that we know him. Obviously, somebody like Bruce Wayne would be world famous. He's a billionaire. He owns vast companies and resources. He'd be known to people. And that's the case this time around. Reporters know who he is. Industry heads know who he is. He's a very famous person. So I think we that's a smart decision that, or decisions that they made for Val Kilmer to play him a little more reserved, a little more icy in public, where he's keeping people at a distance, and but still carrying over this loneliness. Because if this is 
you know, running in order. He's been Batman for a while now. It's starting to take a toll on him and realizing how separate he has to keep these two lives. And the movie itself, I think that other than all these differences, it's just a lot of fun. And I think that's something that was kind of missing a little bit from the other two. And now don't get me wrong, Batman Returns is amazing, but it's not what you would really call a fun movie. It's just an awesome movie. Whereas Batman Forever, it just goes for it. It just leans into it. It leans into the humor and and the action and the excitement. And it's a romp. You have a great time. The villains are great. Now, I know that this film, more than some of the others, has a lot of behind-the-scenes problems, a lot of he-said-she-said about trauma drama and people whining, you know, Tommy Lee Jones being a prima donna on set because he didn't like the attention Jim Carrey was getting, but Jim Carrey, according to some, was an incredible gentleman to everybody, knew just the the gift he'd been given with this role and the responsibility of the role, Val Kilmer kind of being a bit of a prima donna, but it all works out in the end because the characters are all just so rich. Jim Carrey is doing his best Frank Gorshin. I think it's Frank Gorshin is his name. who played the Riddler on the, the Adam West TV show. And you get kind of glimpses of some of the darker performances that Jim Carrey would go on to do. You see edges of that here, but with still a good healthy dose of Jim Carrey. And it's it's hilarious and awesome. This was really peak Jim Carrey time. You know, there was a year period where Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Batman Forever, and, and Ace Ventura 2 all came out within about 18 months or two years. So he was everywhere, and we were happy to have him. And the character's interesting. There's a real arc there. Yes, he's arch. You know, he's already a little kooky at the start. But you can see how that kind of, you know, tortured genius can destroy somebody. Especially when it turns into, you know, this kind of misplaced hero worship. Two-Face is just kind of there. You know, it's... There's no real depth you know, Tommy Lee Jones does a great performance because he's very broad in a way that you don't usually see Tommy Lee Jones going that big. He's known for kind of a more his hard-boiled energy that he has to him to his performances. But here he is just huge. And I don't know if that's the liberation from the makeup or costumes or whatever, but he decided to just go pretty wild with this character. And he's a hoot to deal with. He's a hoot because the film has such a great sense of playfulness. You know, Nicole Kidman as the the sex-crazed femme fatale psychologist who just can't decide who she wants to fuck more, Batman or Bruce Wayne, and she is just absolutely stunning in this. It's Nicole Kidman. She's always been stunning, but she is just stunning in this movie. Just, you could take her design and character and plunk her down in any 50s film noir and she'd fit right in. The villains are great. You know, Michael Goff doing his best. Alfred still just a nice little consistency throughout the film. And there's just a bunch of fun little moments. Like we get our first glimpse of Arkham Asylum this time with Odo, Rene Auberjonois playing obviously Tim Burton. The doctor is even called Dr. Burton. You know, 
it does get bigger and more comic booky than the other films the previous two had gotten, you know, with this, the Enigma box that, you know, sucking people's brainwaves out and all this stuff and gaining their knowledge and I'm going to eat your brains and gain your knowledge. Like that's, we can see this, you know, nowadays, big, crazy comic book concepts like that are much more common. At this point, though, you hadn't really seen weirdness like that before. So it it felt a little more wild, a little more over the top, which just adds to the movie's sense of fun. You know, there's all this neon and pop sensibility to the whole film that it just makes it a bit of a hoot. And like I said, it it's easy in hindsight to look back and forget that it was such a success and that we all did have so much fun with it. And I think, yes, there's the grumblers that are like, oh, it's not Tim Burton's Batman and it's not Michael Keaton. Well, yes, it's not. But it wasn't trying to just do that again. You know, they could have brought in a director that was just going to keep that hard approach, make it look like Batman Returns Part 2 and not change anything up. But they didn't go that route. They wanted to do something a little lighter, a little more fun, you know, put a bit of wind back in the Cape Crusaders cape, as it were. And I think it's very successful for that reason. But it's hard for a lot of people to get past, one, the shadow of Batman and Robin, and two, nipples on the Batsuit. <laughs> now, I guess we can't talk about the Schumacher Batmans without addressing the the nipple controversy, you know, nipplegate, as it were. So Schumacher's reasoning behind doing this, and I can understand why he decided to go this route, is looking at the roots of the hero myths and who the original superheroes were. And that those were the Greek gods. They were the, the heroes of Greek mythology. And as they were represented in art and sculpture and architecture, they were heavily muscled, very anatomically correct. And in the first Batman movie, the rubber bat suit had abs on it. But then in Batman Returns, they went to more of a utilitarian look where they had abs, but it looked like armor. It was very specifically plate armor that time around. So this time he decided to go back and reflect that look in the designs to give it a very grandiose look where they would look immediately heroic the second you looked at these suits. So that meant putting the muscles back on them. The suits were designed to look, you know, have very defined pecs and abs and leg muscles and arm muscles to look like they'd been carved out of stone. And that also included nipples and butts and it didn't help that Schumacher can be is very fetishistic in these films with certain things. You know, that there's the awesome arming up scene at the start where he's picking out all his tools, but there's also the suiting up moments that are very fetishized, you know, where it's hard close-ups of Batman turning into the camera of, you know, putting on the gauntlets, you know, his cape swinging, you know, close-up shots of the chest and the nipples, you know, bat butt, all that stuff. And it's cute and funny, but is it necessarily Batman? I I don't think so. I don't think it really takes away from it, 
but I think it it's contributed to kind of a an attitude towards the film where people do get distracted by it. I don't think it's something that Batman would be interested in. You know, the suit is designed to be intimidating and utilitarian. So going through this extra effort to put nipples and stuff on the suit, you know, making it look scary with, you know, muscles and all that kind of stuff, you know, sure, whatever, you know, usually it's just Batman just filling out the suit because he's always been in the comics a bit more of a big dude, but like it's, it's okay. The cod pieces get a little ridiculous, you know, the cod pieces on Batman and Robin, especially in their final suits, holy shit, are, are pretty outrageous. And Jim Carrey's onesies get get a little crazy too. I don't know if he called up David Bowie and borrowed his labyrinth cod piece, but holy shit, you know the Riddler and Jared and Batman and Robin could have a cod piece thrown down, and it would be it, it would be uncomfortably impressive. Uh, I guess we can't get out of this without talking about Robin because that's the other big addition here. There had been talk, I believe, around Batman Returns of introducing Robin, and there's actually going to be, I think, Damon Wayans. And people got all up in arms about that. They didn't end up going that route. But I think with the lighter tone they were going for here, introducing Robin made sense because he's so tied to the Batman story. And Chris O'Donnell is fine in the role. I think he's too old for for Dick Grayson because he's supposed to be a younger character. He doesn't feel to me like somebody that's in their, you know, late teens in any way. But he does a fine job. Um, like, you can tell that he's not actually doing any of the acrobatics and stuff, you know. And it's a nice throwback with the Flying Graysons to the Burt Ward Robin outfit which with their outfits. So that's a nice callback. It also just gives Bruce Wayne a chance to move into a bit more of not just so much a father figure, but kind of reflect on the route he went down and to try and become a guiding figure in his personal life as well as in his professional life out there being Batman. And when you're not, when you're a superhero without powers, having some backup is probably helpful. Now, in the comic book universe, Especially after Robin, there was obviously an explosion in the kid sidekicks and, you know, kid sidekicks in general. But Robin was the first. He was the first sidekick that these characters had that wasn't just kind of a mascot. You know, Robin actually put on the suit and came, went out and fought crime with him. So it's fine. You know, his suit's okay. His Nightwing-esque suit in the fourth movie, I think, looks much cooler but it's okay here. It's it's a fine touch. It doesn't hurt the film in any way, I don't think. It was, you know, if you're going to do a Batman story over a series of films, eventually you have to deal with Robin. He's just so intrinsic to the Batman mythology. So, again, this film was a huge success. Marketing, advertising, all worked. And it made a shitload of money. So, there was obviously going to be another film and everybody was stoked but then things kind of started to go wrong with Batman and Robin and it's very well documented the problems that this film had in its production and you can find that information lots of other places so I won't get too deep into it 
But the biggest problem that they that happened with this film is that there seemed to be much more of a drive at the studio to sell toys and to merchandise the film than there was to just make a really good Batman movie. And even Joel Schumacher, who returned to direct, has referred to a term that the studio used called toyetic, where designs were being submitted, scripts, additions were being submitted based solely around toys. So they were having to make these decisions so early in production and they became locked into them because it takes so long to manufacture toys. You have to design them, build the molds, you know, run the line. Do It takes about a year in advance, I think, they need in the toy industry to have these things ready. So it became more of a race to sell toys than it became to make, like I said, a really good Batman movie. So that left us with 1997's Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin try and keep their relationship together, even as they must stop Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy from freezing Gotham City. Okay. This is the movie that put the nail in the coffin of the original run of Batman films. It killed the franchise dead for several years until Christopher Nolan picked it up with... With Batman Begins. If Batman Forever got some flack for being lighter than the other films, having a little more camp, a little more silliness, a greater sense of playfulness, this movie just doubled down on that element. And it becomes that matter of, well, this much of this worked last time. More of this will work even better. Instead of realizing that it worked last time because it was different. You went a new direction. It was refreshing. Good. Now it's time to do something different again. Instead, they completely dialed down on the camp and it became as campy as camp can ever camp. This is the straight. This is Adam West's Batman, you know. Comic book movies and comics in general are known for bending physics and what the heroes can do, but here they snap them right off. There's no sense of reality to this film. Heroes, they're flipping through the air, flying around in ways that even even for a comic book film, we're like, nope, people don't move like that. Zipping out one-liners constantly. The... The uh, a game that I think everybody should play, but be wary how you play it, is the Mr. Freeze drinking game when you watch this film. Now, you can tell that Arnold Schwarzenegger had a lot of fun playing Mr. Freeze. He, he bears a, some resemblance in terms of story to the comic book version and the, and the various other animated and video game versions of Mr. Freeze. But... He spouts off so many freeze and ice-related puns and zingers that if you were to take a shot every time he did this, you would get alcohol poisoning. When I watched this, I counted because I wondered. I'm like, just how many times does he do this? I did the same thing when I watched uh, Passion of the Christ for A Frame Apart. I was like, how many times do they hit Jesus? And it turns out in that movie, too fucking many times. It's like hundreds of times. Mr. Freeze has 32 freeze or ice-related puns or zingers throughout the course of this film. 32 of them. 
that's incredible. It's just fucking madness. The movie is so fucking silly. And it doesn't make any attempt to hide the fact that it's being grossly silly. It is a movie targeted at very young children and it's designed to sell toys, which is odd because there are, especially with Poison Ivy. Now, Uma Thurman crushes Poison Ivy. She brings so much sex and silliness to the role. But there are some outrageously sexual moments in this film that I think would be shocking for children. And it's just, it's such a mess of a movie that, yes, it killed the franchise for a while. How, where this was going. The fifth, the planned fifth movie, Batman Triumphant, fell apart. And eventually they went into reboot territory with Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. There is still a lot to love if you come to this movie as a bad movie. It is trash. It is it is a fucking terrible movie. But if you sit down with your friends and just come in to riff and zing on this film, oh my god, it's nonstop. Well, just here, just this is just a sampling of the goofy shit we have in this film. The bat skates. I could stop there. They click their heels and skates come out. Like they somehow plan to do this in advance. You know, there's their skyboarding scene when they're falling from the sky on the doors of the rocket ship, which somehow launched out of a museum without blowing the museum to pieces. The complete and utter butchering of the Bane character. Uh, Mr. Freeze's uh, giant polar bear slippers and his house coat. The back credit card. Bane in a trench coat and fedora is stunning. Coolio's in it for some reason. Pointless motorcycle races set to rave music. Batgirl. Like, you can do, the list just goes on and on and on. This movie is trying so hard to be cool and hip. From the rave music to Coolio's cameo to the motorcycle chases, all that shit. And it really isn't interested in making a good Batman movie. It is, you know, more vehicles, more suits, more characters, because then we can sell more toys. There, There is a core of a story going on here about the importance of family to Bruce Wayne and how that's reflected in Mr. Freeze's single-minded goal to save his wife from this disease. She has McGregor syndrome, which is also impacting Alfred. So those elements are there, but they're not exploited in any kind of intelligent way because it's something that's integral to the to Batman in the comic, his relationship with these other people in his life, with the other Bat family members, you know, from Rob, the various Robins to Batgirl and all these other helpers that he's had. There's, they try at that, but nothing comes of it. You know, it's just for such a big film and there's a lot going on. There's a shit ton of effects and miniatures and Gotham city has never been bigger. There's so many bridges. It's, it looks great. Um, but it's, it's never been bigger. It's never been sillier. And that seemed to be the only real focus of the movie. It's not good, but it's not boring. It is immensely entertaining for all the wrong reasons. If you know somebody that's a fan of, especially the Adam West era of Batman, show them Batman and Robin. Because the movie is a hoot. It's, But like I said, it's not a hoot because it's good or competent. It's a hoot because 
adults all got together, spent tens of millions of dollars to do this, and nobody really seemed to give a shit. You know, George Clooney is a great actor, but he's very miscast as Batman or Bruce Wayne. Chris O'Donnell's still trying to do his thing. His suit looks better this time around. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's having fun. You tell Uma Thurman's having fun. But, you know, Alicia Silverstone is horribly miscast as Batgirl. Just her line, everything's terrible. Her performance is just awful. Awful. Yeah, it's, it is a terrible movie, but it is a hoot. You, you will just have a hoot if you go into the movie with the, the right mindset. You can't go in expecting the other films. It, it's not even Batman Forever. And, yeah, just just watch and enjoy. It was fun. I've never sat down and watched all four of these movies in a row before. You know, usually if I'm going to watch a movie from this era, I'll watch Batman Returns around Christmas because it's a Christmas movie. Or throw on Batman Forever every, uh, every now and then. Or Batman and Robin if some friends are over and we're having drinks. But to sit and watch them all and see kind of this progression and not just the change in the films, but the change in the times and how that's reflected and, you know, into the 90s with this focus on everything being cool and hip and how that impacted the films and the the change in director styles and what they individually brought to it. It's a very interesting run of films, how you can watch a franchise change and evolve But at the same time, you know, just like with evolution, sometimes it creates branches of the family tree that don't work and implode in on themselves. And that's what happened with this. It is you can watch this franchise kind of peak and then absolutely crash down on its nose. But all of them are worth watching for very different reasons. And there's something to enjoy and love about every single one of them. So this was fun. It was nice to look at kind of this, go back to this era, a more simpler era of comic book films and superhero films on the big screen. But that brings us to DS9. So we have season two, episode two, The Circle, which aired on October 3rd, 1993. So, uh, synopsis. Uh, as as a circle-led Bajoran military attempts to occupy the station, no, no, shit, that's the next episode. Uh, Kira spends time with Vedic Barail on Bajor just as the Circle begins arming themselves from, from a mysterious source. So we're continuing from last week's episode, which is dealing with the politicking and the power struggle that's happening on Bajor. With this group, the Circle, uh, this terrorist group is attempting a coup, uh, starting a civil war and a coup of the, the Bajoran provisional government. So we're picking off exactly where we left off last time. Now, it's if you like the last episode, you're going to like this one. But there's an excellent scene right at the start, because what's happened is the crooked guy in the Bajoran government, First Minister Jaro, has, for, has pulled Major Kira from the station and stuck Lee Nollis there to keep him out of the way. Because he knows that this guy could unite all the various factions on Bajor and stabilize the government, so he's got to push him out. So the episode starts with Kira being forced out of the station. And there's a wonderful scene that shows just how well these actors and these characters are starting to coalesce and just how well the writers know them. So Kira's packing to leave 
and one by one, most of the main cast shows up. And it almost plays out like a bit of a stage drama and just kind of one big long take. Odo shows up just fucking peeking. Like, how can you do this? You have to fight. You're a fighter, you motherfucker. You got to do this. Fucking stay. Don't leave me. You know, secretly we know it's because Odo's in love with her, but besides the point. He can't imagine that she would just give up. They're fighters. That's what they do. Dax shows up. Trying to be supportive, take her mind off of it, brings her some skin lotion. You know, just trying to be this supportive older figure. Knowing what she's going through, I'm just going to be a stable rock. You know, the doctor shows up all nervous, you know, just I wanted to say goodbye. O'Brien shows up being the professional, you know, it was an honor to serve with you. Cork shows up with a bottle of liquor, small one, of course, trying to be a sleazy slime ball. You know, it's it's what they all do. And they're all bouncing back and forth on each other in perfect character. There's no info dumps. It's not like, oh, we need this information to to come out. So this character could just say it. No, the characters are getting really solid now. And we can see just how well they all play with each other when they're all in one room together. And I think that's a sheer so- a good sign of, with TV shows like this, how well the writers have a handle on things and how well the cast is starting to coalesce when you can put everybody together for a big group talk over each other conversation, but everybody's staying in character. It's just a wonderful scene. And then Vedic Brile shows up and he gets a little too starey. For me, uh, they, they're introducing this love story between Kira and Beryl that would continue for, for a good long while. But a good long while with Vedic Beryl. Tonight at 6 on Bajor's Hot 100 radio show, KBBL. Uh, no, that would be pretty funny if they had a Bajoran radio show. Be probably some religious call-in show. You know, the prophets took me out of my house and gave me an anal probe. That would be awesome. I'm sure there's a but I'm sure there's a gross fan fiction out there about just that very thing. What do people see when they look into the orbs? Gross. But that part is great. And then when we finally see Cisco, he do, no subterfuge, no bullshit. He's like, "I'm getting you back. Like this isn't over. I'm gonna get you back." So it's great, you know. And the big thing we learn here in this episode is while this. All this politicking is happening, and the circle is moving to start what is basically a civil war slash coup. They're secretly being armed by the Cardassians with the express desire to drive the Federation out. Because the circle, they're very xenophobic. They want, they look at the Federation as no better than the Cardassians. They want Bajor for Bajorans. And the Cardassians want the Federation gone because then they can swoop back in and not just retake Bajor, but then they can control the wormhole, which is such an important thing now with the exploration and transportation between themselves and the Gamma Quadrant or the Alpha Quadrant and the Gamma Quadrant. So now the Circle doesn't know this is happening. They think they're just getting these weapons from a third party, but of course, it's just wonderfully duplicitous Cardassian behavior. You know, they just, they never fucking give up. You know, they just always a new scheme to try and get back into the game with Bejor and to take control of the wormhole. It's just fucking terrible. They're wonderful characters. And then fucking Vedic win. Of course, she is in the thick of things here, aligning herself with the, with Minister Jaro and the circle 
so that if he is elected to the head of the Bajoran government, he can basically appoint her Kai, the head of their of their religious order, make her the Pope. That's all she wants is power. She has no interest in what's good for the people. She herself is a racist xenophobe that's only concerned about power. She's a Republican. Most Republicans. So it's it's a great episode. There's it's intensely character focused. And that's what this opening three-parter is to this to the new season. Is there's some a bit of techie stuff going on, you know, people are tapping keyboards and shit, but it is it is completely character focused and it's really showing what DS9 can do that the other series can't. And because we are in one place, we can have continued arcs like this. DS9 isn't afraid of doing two and three parters. And it is the show that would, as it went on, really pushed into becoming heavily serialized. And in an era where most TV now is serialized, they're acting as, you know, eight or nine part movies, you know, the return of the miniseries, even though they don't call them miniseries anymore. But this is a great early example of how the show can serialize. And because the work was done in the first season, not just on characters, but on the world building, they have all these wonderful sandboxes to play in. And they don't immediately use up their stories. The environments are so rich and the cultures and the characters are so rich that they can play in these worlds for the foreseeable future. So another really good episode. Books. Stephen King month continues for me. I read his 2001 book, Dreamcatcher. Now, this book is kind of notable for several reasons. There was the movie that came out that Lawrence Kasdan did. Uh, Morgan Freeman and a bunch of other guys are in it. And I think it's kind of memorable for the shit weasels. I remember buying a, an issue of Fango uh, around this time that had the shit weasel on the cover. Just a big old photo of the butt weasel. But the other thing is notable, notice, notable for, excuse me, is this was the first book that King wrote after his accident in 1999. So I'm sure most people know or most King fans remember that in 1999, King was hit by a van and almost died. Yeah, he was fucked up pretty bad, smashed his hips up, smashed his back up. He was he was a broken dude, uh, something he would later write into the Dark Tower series, an awesome uh, twist all through there. But he was out of commission. He was in horrible pain on painkillers, couldn't sit up for long periods of time. So and afraid to write, you know, have I lost it? You know, did this knock the knock my wind out? Will I ever get my my game back on? Because after King sobered up, he went on after the Tommy knockers, he went on a pretty incredible run of of work in the 90s, just hitting one awesome book after another. You know, Needful Things, Dolores Claiborne, Gerald's Game. Uh, excuse me, I'm trying to picture my shelf out in the other room. The Green Mile, Desperation and the Regulators, and then kind of peaking with Bag of Bones, which is excellent, excellent book. And um, before the accident, he had written from a Buick 8, but it didn't come out until after it. And he had written a good chunk of On Writing, his nonfiction book. So he had an incredible run of work in the 90s. Just really great, 
character-driven stuff. He was experimenting with concepts and styles, you know, the serialized books of Green Mile, the single setting of Gerald's game, its interconnectedness, interconnectivity with Dolores Claiborne, the the experiment of desperation and then taking those same characters and flipping them into new situations with the regulators. It was, he did amazing work. So has he lost it? So he actually wrote this book longhand. He sat down with a fountain pen and, you know, lined paper. And he wrote this book being kind of propped up in a chair, all hepped up on painkillers and wrote the book out longhand. And he has since said that he doesn't much care for the book because he wrote it, a lot of it, under the influence of his painkillers. And it kind of does show because it is an int- it's, it's a spin on War of the Worlds. That's really what it is. You know, an alien invasion shows up and they're impacted negatively by, by our environment. It's interesting, but it's messy. And there's a real sense here, and you can tell in the prose, that it feels like King is really trying to find his writing legs again. He's trying to get his sea legs back under him. And as such, he kind of throws everything in the kitchen sink into this plot and into this story. And now, King has never shied away from having busy books. You know, he's written some absolutely monumentally huge books that have a shitload of stuff going on. And some cases, they work really, really well, like The Stand. In some cases, it's like It, where it's just a meandering fucking mess, or Tommyknockers, which is another drug-addled mess. Here, he's trying to do so much because I, I feel like he's trying everything he knows how to do. He's trying to do action and he's trying to do more esoteric stuff. And he's trying to connect with his own existing mythology. And he's trying to do lunatic villains and, but still kind of focusing on a bit of his bread and butter, which are a small group of friends that are, impacted and by an event in their childhood that is now having consequences in their adult life. It's something he knows how to do very well. He's visited this on a lot of occasions. There are very strong echoes of it in this storyline and to the fact that they reference Derry, they go to Derry, they even go to a monument that was built by the Losers Club. Like they reference it flat out. So I think he was trying to stay in a bit of a milieu that he was very familiar with and a structure that he was very familiar with while experimenting with some some newer elements. So that that does end up it leaves us with a book that is v- overly busy where the focus is kind of lost in some sections. Now, there are very cool ideas that I think if he had of just stayed focused. Like if he had have tried this book before his accident with that kind of, with his 90s skill that he had going on, I think it would have been more interesting. The idea of this character that has been kind of taken over by a, this alien life form and kind of relegated to, uh, being trapped inside his own head, which manifests as this office. And outside of the office is this warehouse full of all of his memories in boxes. And he's rushing out and steals some, That's a really neat idea. 
it's not exploited hugely, especially this idea of the memory warehouse. And I think that comes down to the fact that King's a discovery writer and not a plotter. I think a plotter would have focused more on that element because I think it would have made it more interesting. I don't know if they do that more in the film or not. But those parts are, I think, the most interesting of the book. You know, as he's communicating with this Mr. Gray, with this alien presence in his head, and the alien is learning, you know, as they say, going native, is slowly becoming a little more human. He has to learn how to eat and starts to understand emotions because he's an emotionless species. So he's learning about lust and greed and, you know, murder and eating and having to shit and all this different stuff. So those parts are neat. The, the alien invasion in the wintry landscape is a great visual. The, obviously the crazy army guys that show up and have to deal with it is very King. But even those characters get a little out of control. They get very monologue in ways that don't really make sense. And the characters take big, weird jumps in their, in their tones. And while the idea of kind of taking the alien chestburster and flipping it on its head is a neat idea, having these shit weasels, as he calls them, break out of people's assholes it become it's a horrible image, but when the characters that are impregnated with them are constantly farting, it's hard to take seriously because, yes, it is a horrid concept that this thing is living in your bowel and slowly feeding on you, and then when it's done feeding on you, it rips its way out of your asshole. That's horrible. That is. It's genuinely horrible. But because they keep farting and burping, Burps and farts are funny. They're not scary. It, it doesn't matter that, you know, even with this thing growing inside you, somebody ripping a huge fart and writing the word fart and stinky fart, that's funny. So it keeps, it keeps diffusing his own tension uh, in his own sad way. But it's, it's an interesting book because if you know the conditions under which he wrote it. The whole Duddits thing, the kid that with Down syndrome that they saved is a who's psychic who can shine as a kid, and that's kind of the by being around him, they kind of absorb some of his psychic powers is neat, but like the Duddits ease, the kind of mumbly stuff that he speaks, it gets tedious. Also, most people with Down syndrome don't talk like that, so it's odd. And they don't play it up much. I think in, you know, an entire book focused on these kids having this kind of psychic relationship with someone that's handicapped is neat. But I think he also knew it was too close to it. So he had to change it and bring in this alien invasion story. But the whole thing is just, it's a weird riff on his own work. You know, it's, it's grasping at what he knew best to get himself back in the game. So it's worth reading if you're a King completionist. I wouldn't suggest it as a starting point for anybody, but, you know, that's kind of what this whole month is about for me is filling in the gaps in my collection that I haven't read yet. So interesting, but a, but a gigantic mess, but you could say an understandable mess. So recommendations. Uh, again, this one is easy. Uh, Batman Begins 
for movies. Uh, Batman Begins is the only one of the Dark Knight trilogy that I really like. Uh, the Dark Knight I- isn't a Batman movie at all. Uh, Batman's in it. It's a movie about the Joker that he's disguising that is just a crime movie. You know, it, it's not really a Batman movie. And, but Batman Begins is great. You know, it brings over some of the more gothic aspects of Gotham itself. And, you know, Scarecrow is a very interesting villain for a young Batman. You know, it's all about facing your fears. Uh, Liam Neeson is great as Rajal Ghoul. Uh, Christian Bale is a good Batman. I don't think he's a very good Bruce Wayne, but the first movie is is good. It is a genuinely good Batman movie. And then Batman the movie, the film they made for uh, the Adam West TV show. All the villains are in it. That's where the shark away spray came from, the bat bomb. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. It's a hoot. For books, I recommend uh, Stephen King's On Writing, his uh, nonfiction book, which is kind of half autobiography, half book about writing itself. You'll get more information about the creation of Dreamcatcher is in that book. Um, It's as close as he's ever come to publishing an autobiography about himself. And then his, the section about writing and, you know, his whole metaphor about the toolbox and becoming and how to be a good writer is excellent. I've read the book probably half a dozen times. He narrated the audiobook, so it's always wonderful to hear King do his own work. And I it used the whole thing used to be on YouTube, and I've listened to it probably half a dozen times as well. It is an absolutely excellent book. I cannot recommend it enough. Next week wraps up superhero month. So superheroes and comic books are kind of they're they're really tied hand in hand. It's it, there's not a lot of solo comic book movie or superhero movies that didn't have some sort of a root to begin with in the comic books. So to end the month, I thought I would talk about two superheroes that while one of them had a comic book afterwards were original creations and did not spring from the pages of the silly books. And that is the Toxic Avenger and Orgasmo. Yes, the first superhero from New Jersey and a pre-South Park movie from Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Both of these movies are excellent for very different reasons, and I can't wait to wrap the month up with those. So, until then, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud and iTunes at the Steal My Name Podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, share, follow, message. I'd love to hear what you guys think. Big thank you for everyone that has, you know, been sticking with me and following along on this. It's, again, it's been great to have this to do during the shutdown. Uh, My work is actually gearing up to slowly open. I don't know when I'll be going back to work, but it will be as much as, you know, no one, you know, you don't want to work at this point, kind of be provided that they actually do the safety that they're promising safety measures. I'm actually kind of happy to be able to get up and out of the house and fingers crossed. I got a car this week. So I'm just waiting to hear from the guy. He had a couple things to do to it. So I'll actually have my own wheel so I could drive myself to work every day. That will actually be quite exciting. 
Freedom, yay, except for my insurance payments. So if you're young and listening to this, get your license early, even if you don't buy a car. It's going to help you out in the long run. So thank you once again, and until next time, remember to steal someone else's name, because this one is already taken.